0: Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, if you brought it, we've got it up on the screen if you didn't, but open up there, it's a good passage to underline, it's been the keynote passage of this entire series, will continue to be so. Um, Starting in verse 10 it says, finally my brethren be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might put on the whole armor of God that you may be able, may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand stand therefore having girded your waist with truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace above all taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all The saints, we have been going through this piece by piece, and we'll continue to do so. We've talked about all these different parts of the armor. First of all, we need to understand how crucial this is. The first thing it tells us to do is put it on, which implies that we can take it off. But yet, Paul never said, take it off. You know, I heard for years that you got to daily put on your armor. And the question I always ask is, why would you ever take it off? I mean, it's not like it's physical or it's uncomfortable to sleep in. Don't take it off. We put these things on and we do that for a purpose. But each piece that we went through, today we're going to talk about the shield of faith. But the, each piece is tied together. And we've talked about that. You've got the loin belt and the shield. These two things were inseparable. The, the loin belt held everything together. But the shield itself, it had a clip on this belt that it would rest in. And it would help hold it up when it wasn't necessarily in use. I mean, there were times that it could be used that way, but, but at times there would just rest and whatnot. But the loin belt, as we saw, was the Word of God. And that it was important that we understand this because it is the basis of truth. Faith is the shield. We saw that. And we see that these two things are attached together. Your faith is attached to the Word of God. If your faith is contrary to the Word of God, then your faith is in something that is not true. Do you see how this works? Do you see how these tie together. If you fail to give the Word of God a place of top priority in your life, it is only a matter of time before your faith will begin to dwindle and wane. The faith that we have and the Word of God are absolutely inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. You can have faith in things, but it's not in truth. Faith in something that is contrary to truth is faith in something that will fail you. A lot of times when we see people in the body of Christ who have faith in God and something happens that seems to be contrary to the word or whatever, they usually have their faith built upon a man-made system of some sort that has let them down. I had a young man that I knew um, several years ago. And he, uh, his mother got cancer. Now, he would call himself a Christian, but as, as we know, that's... It's a tough one, you know. We 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 never know for sure if somebody really is. We only know them by their fruits. And and his mom got cancer. He began to cry out to God, God heal her. If you're real, heal her. And those are the words that he used. If you're real, heal her. Well, guess what? She died. She died of cancer and whatnot. Now I don't know where the mom was. I don't know any of this stuff. He grew up in a Lutheran church. And there are good, solid Lutheran churches that are completely dependent upon the Word and are very strong. And there are others that are not so much. Just like any other church for that matter. It's not just Lutheran. You pick any of them. But because of that, he has turned his back upon God. He doesn't believe in God. Now he calls himself an atheist. truth is, he's angry with God. And yet his faith was never really in God. It was, God, what can you do for me? And that's the problem that we have, is where faith is tied to the Word of God. It's inseparable. Romans 10, 17, we've read this get, uh, before. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. These two are tied together and cannot be separated. Faith, the Word. What are we hearing? The Word. If you're hearing things that are contrary to the Word, then your faith will begin to be built up in those things. That's why it's important that we focus on the truth. It's interesting that Paul began this passage, this whole spiritual armor aspect with the belt of truth. He could have started anywhere else and chose the least noticeable piece of the armor. I mean, he could have started with the helmet. He could have started with the breastplate, all these intricacies that are there. Any other part that would maybe jump out to you, but he picks the least noticeable one. And why does he do this? Because the word is central. It's got to be foremost to everything else that we have in God, everything that we believe. Your ability to walk in the knowledge that you are righteous in Christ hinges upon the centrality of God's Word in your life. There's no other way around it. You won't believe that you are the son or daughter of God unless you've accepted that Word as truth. If you're questioning it, if you're waiting on it, then you won't. But the more you read it, the more you study it, the more you hear it, the more it becomes truth and central in your life. That's why Adolf Hitler said that if you tell a lie long enough and loud enough, eventually it will get accepted as truth. And guess what? He did. He was good at it. I've told a story. This is just an example, okay? This will tell you how screwed up the human mind is, or at least mine, okay? I'll leave it at this. I used to, you guys know, I was in youth ministry for a lot of years. I was not what you would call a good student. In fact, I, I took every opportunity to miss school that I could, Um, I didn't go a lot, and I didn't do homework, and I would take the test if they made me. I wasn't your ideal student. It wasn't that I was dumb. I was just lazy, and I didn't like school, and I don't like to be told what to do. And so there's a whole lot of things that were going on there. Well, anyhow, it came time to take the ACTs, and I decided I'm not taking the ACTs. I don't need the ACTs and whatnot, and I go on through life done all right without ever taking the ACTs. But every year while doing student ministry, you have a group of students that are getting ready to take the ACTs. And So I always gave them a hard time because 36 I think is a a perfect score if I remember correctly. And joking with them, I'd always say, you know, they come back, oh, I got a 20 or I got a 24. I was like, oh, that's good. I said, yeah, I did pretty well on it too, I think. I said, I don't really know. And and they say, oh, yeah, well, what'd you get? I said, I don't know, 32 or something. I didn't study and stuff. And I said that jokingly. Of course, they're all impressed because the 32 would be a really good score if it actually happened. The problem was I told that story so many times it became truth in my mind. Somebody asked me, "Is he like, hey, did you take the ACT? I said, oh yeah, I got a 32. And I had to stop for a second. I'm like, wait a minute. I never actually took the test. But I'm I joking with these guys for so long. And I convinced myself of a story that I told that never happened. How screwed up is that? That's messed up. I should seek counseling or something for that. I don't know. But, but that's where we are. That is what truth does. Truth, hearing something long enough becomes truth in our lives. And as crazy as that sounds, and you may be thinking, well, I'm never going to be that dumb. I bet you are, because we've all done it. You've heard of the fish stories, right? You caught a fish this, bay, this big, and the more you tell it, the thing grows. You go hunting. I've heard deer hunters. I saw a, a guy shot a buck, okay, and he was telling about all the, the, I don't deer hunt, all right, but the points on the buck, it's a big deal, apparently. And he was talking, it was a 14, 15, 16, I don't remember, but it was a big buck. And then his wife showed me a picture. One of the antlers was gone. It wasn't even there when he shot it. So what he did is he took this side, and he took it times two. He just assumed. And he just, but he convinced himself that this was a big deal. This was a trophy buck. What do we do? We lie to ourselves. We tell ourselves things that aren't true until we feel good about them. The centrality of truth is crucial to everything, and the Word is truth. The Word, the word has foremost position in our lives. Then the peace of God is released to call the shot, shots in our lives, and that guards our hearts, it guards our minds, it guards everything. The gospel of peace, the preparation of the gospel of peace, our feet are shod with us. When you're lacking in something, we should read the Word over and over until that faith begins to come in when we <laughs> accept that Word as truth. In other words, if something comes into my life that is contrary to what God said, then I will not accept it as truth. I don't care how strong the evidence for it is. You can take that in a million different directions. Because the world we live in today denies the existence of truth. It denies the existence of God. It denies the existence of the supernatural or anything miraculous. Because because miracles imply something greater than the act itself. It has to. And so by denying this, then they try to cut the legs off of religion altogether. Your ability to walk in strong faith is determined of the presence and or the absence of God's word in your life. You cannot be strong in faith in God. You can't be strong in it if the word is not central to who you are. Because when the word is central to who you are, then it calls the shots. I've told you this before, but when I counsel people who are having marriage difficulties, the first thing I do is I set a Bible on my desk. I said, do you agree or disagree? This thing is central to your life, and what it says goes. And if the answer is yes, then we can continue. But if the answer is no, we're done, because you've already made up your mind. In other words, there is no basis, there's no foundation upon what you already believe. You're just going to do whatever you want. We conform our life to what the Word says. We don't change the Word to fit what we want. You guys following me? Romans ten seventeen. 17, we just read it. Faith is the result of the impartation of God's Word in your heart. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. This is a cry out to Israel. Israel rejected the Messiah. The Word had been preached. They denied it. They denied that it is true. Jesus can't be the Messiah. He's not what we thought He should be. He's messing with our system. There's no way. That's the context of the whole thing. And yet the denial of truth, we got to hear it and accept it as truth. The practical outworking of your salvation is greatly affected by the renewing of your mind to this truth. And the deal is this. You may be born again and at peace with God, but you'll miss out on His benefits unless you permit the power of God's Word to work and transform your mind. It's got to change. Our thinking has got to change. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 7. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. The schizophrenic Paul passage is what I call it. It's, it's insane, but yet that's where we are. We accept the things that God said is truth, and the importance that He puts on things need to become important to our lives. So that's kind of a quick recap of everything we've done to this point, but let's talk about the shield of faith today. In verse 16 in Ephesians 6, it says, Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. There's so much in this. Very powerful passage. So much going on in this little verse. What we need to understand, first of all, is that when we talk about the shield of faith, remember, Paul is applying this to a Roman soldier of what he is seeing. Now, a lot of this stuff you can find in parts of the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah. You see some of it in other parts of Paul's writings. But here he is explaining this these Roman soldiers had two shields. Not just one, they had two. One of them was for parades and for ceremonies and different things that they would do. If there was a a funeral or something like that, they would use it for that. The other one was the one that they used for battle. And so there's two different Greek words that come to this. And for the first one, it's the Greek word aspis, A-S-P-I-S. And it's a small round shield that was primarily a decorative piece of equipment. And it was used in these public ceremonies and these parades. It's tiny. I think I've got a picture of it. Yeah. Something like that. Now that may not be exact. And there, there's varying different looks of these things. None of all of them were looking the same because As I told you, all of this armor was custom to the individual. It was made to fit that person's body. And that's a lot when you look back at Saul and what would be King David when he's trying to get ready to go fight Goliath and he goes, put on my armor. It's never going to work. His armor will not work for David. It's too big. It's not made for him. But God took the armor that he's provided us, custom made to us. Well, look at this shield. It's got these intricate etchings and engravings on the front of it. And usually in the front and middle portion, not always, but a lot of times, because these artists would would really hone what they do, they would put this um, almost a rendition of some battle that they won right in the center. Now, obviously, that's not the case there unless he beat a starfish or something. I don't know. But but it, it was just set out. To look gorgeous, because why? They were using it for public use. They wanted people to see it. They wanted people to take notice of it. And despite its beauty, it wasn't really useful, because the size of it was pretty tiny. It was, you know, yay big around. About double a car tire. It would work, it would be better than nothing, but it looked good, but it wasn't really useful for battle. That's the bottom line. But the second kind of shield is the one that Paul is referring to here. It comes from the Greek word theros, T-H-U-R-E-O-S. And that word means a door that was wide and was long. And this shield would completely cover the individual and protect them. It was big, which is part of the reason it had to have a clip on your belt to help haul the sucker around. It weighed a lot. And so he'd put it on there and it would be big and it would cover. And you can kind of see a a drawing of this thing here. Not a very good one, but I didn't do that. Just so you know, it'd be stick figures if it was me. But I think this is interesting when we compare these two shields, because most of us, and maybe you never knew this until today, that there was two different kinds of shield. And Paul chose the bigger one rather than the first one that we talked about. Now, why would that be? The question I would have is, what kind of faith do you have? Do you have one that looks nice, that maybe is appealing to the eye, but really wouldn't do you any good if the enemy was attacking you? Or do you have a faith... That is strong. Do you have a small faith that's kind of useless? Or do you have a great faith into a great God? Something to think about. Maybe it's just me, but that jumped out to me. Romans 12 and verse 3 says this, "...for I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think more highly than he ought to think." But to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now talk about this armor. Remember how I said it was custom. It's custom to mate. That God has dealt each one a measure of faith. How much is a measure of faith? The measure of faith for you is more than enough to overcome any enemy that would ever come against you. It's more than enough. It's more than what you need. We just got to use it Correctly. So the shield was composed of multiple layers, it was usually about six, but it could be more, of this thick animal hide that was very, very tightly woven together. You wouldn't know it was six layers unless you knew it was six layers. You couldn't tell by looking at this. And these hides were specially tanned and woven together so tightly they became almost as strong as steel. And I thought it was interesting that a lot of these ones that were used for battle, not the the artistic ones, but the, the battle ones was used of animal hide Versus metal, because metal would make a lot more sense to me if I got things coming against me. But there's a couple things there that that we need to understand. And so these things were incredibly strong, and they were long-lasting, as long as they were properly maintained. And that's the key, because you're dealing with leather. Leather has a tendency to become weak and brittle if it's not properly maintained. There's things that you've got to do. So these soldiers had a daily schedule that they had to keep for maintaining these things. were required something of them. Every day, they would have to rub oil into it. And so they would soak these claws in this very thick oil, and they would rub it on the shield every day, usually first thing in the morning before they do anything else. They would rub this here. Now, let's make a spiritual connection here. What does the oil represent all throughout scripture represents something. Holy Spirit. Rub your faith. Holy Spirit. You guys making the connect? You guys see? I mean, again, these are subtle things that connect together here, but Paul knows all of this when he's writing. And the people of the time that were reading it certainly would have. But because we don't know the culture, a lot of times we miss some of these intricacies so that's interesting there another thing that they would do is before they would go into battle they would soak this thing in water they would fill these vats with water and each person would go in there and they would soak them in there for whatever amount of time until those things were completely saturated why would they do this here's an interesting part the leather would soak it up and if it was hit by a fiery arrow it would immediately extinguish the arrow because it would maintain or would hold that water for a very long time. And so let's look at this. Verse 16 again. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. So what are these fiery darts? The Greek word used here is very specific and it's historical word that was used in warfare. And I'm going to attempt to pronounce this guy's name, but I promise I'm probably butchering it. Thucydides, Thucydides, I don't know how you say this. I can't pronounce half of these Greek words. As I said before, I don't speak Greek, okay? But he was a Greek ancient writer. And so a lot of these, you can go back, and you use these extra-biblical texts, and they compare grammatical things, they compare things that were going on at the time, and so they can make the connections of what's happening in the Bible. But he was this Greek ancient writer, and he described these terrible errors that were equipped with fire. And so the military of the New Testament times used three types of arrows. The first one was a regular arrow. It's very similar to the things that we would shoot today. Now, they're not composite or, or whatnot. Or I was telling somebody the other day, I saw a video where they've got an arrow now that they shoot for turkey hunting that just cuts the head off the turkey, which you've got to be a pretty stinking good shot to do that. But I, I don't know. It just They have a whole promo video. It's like three and a half minutes long of turkey heads popping off. It was, I don't know, it was interesting. Maybe interesting is not the right word. Anyway, so they were regular arrows, and they would use these in everyday combat. They would use them shooting against one another. But there was another arrow that they would dip in tar, and they would set the tar on fire. And when they would shoot it, of course, the tar sticks to stuff, and the fire would burn there. And that was immediately the one that I was thinking, oh, this must be the fire arrows. This isn't the fiery arrow that, that Paul's referring to. The third one was an arrow that contained this combustible fluid that would burst into flames upon impact it looked almost identical to the regular arrows that they would just be shooting. And so Paul's word usage here is identical to that guy that I said before, that we know that it's the third arrow that he's referring to. That's how they they connected these. And these things were the scariest of all, because when these things were being shot at you, they looked just like a regular arrow. Now, if I have one dipped in tar and set on fire and it's coming into me, I'm like, oh, that one's on fire. Maybe I should move. You know, but if it looks like just a regular arrow, I'm just probably thinking it's a regular arrow until it hits. And once it hits, it bursts into flame. It's almost like a, a bomb, if you will. It wasn't after the, until after the impact that they would actually realize the damage that these things would contain. Now, these weren't used all the time. They weren't used in everyday combat. They were used specifically against them only in cases where they were fortified, where they were hunched down and things. Maybe they had walls in front of them or a, a huge hill or something that was keeping the enemy from coming at them. And so they would shoot these over the walls because they couldn't break the encampment of the Roman soldiers. And so what would happen is they would just shoot one after another after another until finally it would break through and it would, it would cause them to either break up or not. And so they would hit the, the shield which was soaked in water. They'd burst into flames, but it would immediately extinguish them because it was retaining all this water. In other words, it would hit, but it wouldn't do them any damage. I think that's interesting because if you remember back, that one, one of the, uh, the parts when we are talking about the four different enemies that we have that Paul's describing there in Ephesians 6 is one of the definitions was that it was the throwing something over and over and over again until it finally penetrates and yet here we see this again with these fire arrows that they would continue to shoot them one after another after another until finally they got through or in a lot of cases didn't get through Roman army was very very strong it's interesting that you see these connections here that Paul is making So let's look at verse 16 again. It says, Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. This word above all here comes from the two Greek words. is epi and passin. epi Epi means over and passin means all or everything. You see, I have heard my entire life that the most important part of this armor is the shield because it says above all. Take the shield of faith, right? Maybe you've heard that. I'm sure I'm not alone. That it's the most important piece. We've got to have it. We've got to have our faith built up. And that is true. But Paul is not saying that this one is more important than any of the other ones because the truth be told, you eliminate the loin belt, you got problems. But this is describing its importance rather than its function. It's not saying take this above everything else as if you had a choice like, I can't take everything, so I better take my shield because it's the most important. That's not what he's saying. It's describing the act that this thing did. The shield would cover up everything else and protect it. In other words, it was above. In other words, it could maybe be said like this. It was out in front of all. It was covering all, above all. Everything else. Your faith stands before everything else. We've got to make these connections here. Verse 16 again, above all, taking the shield of faith. Here we see it is the Greek word, analabamo, bano, analabano. I'm going to take some Greek classes so I can learn to talk like this because I can't say any of this stuff. Ana is two, it's good, it's two words here compounded together. It's up, back, or again, and lambano is take up order to take in hand. To take something up in your hand or pick something back up again. What this is basically saying is pick up your shield. Pick it up. Have it. Pick up your faith. But this implies something that is very profound. That if you can pick it up, you can also put it down. Our shield, our faith should be above all, in front of all, covering all. In other words, no matter what comes against me, my faith stands. You can send whatever you want. My faith is in front of me, and it precedes everything I do. But the way Paul writes this stuff is that we could actually set that down and say, go ahead, take your best shot, see what you got. And a lot of believers do that. They do it all the time. They're like, oh, I'm not, I don't feel like reading my Bible. You know, I, I take a day off, and a day turns into a week, and a week turns into a month, and a month turns into a year, and before long you don't even know where you put your Bible. I could always tell somebody, and this isn't always true because we do have multiple Bibles, but every once in a while, somebody would forget their Bible at church. And so I'd just leave it sitting on a shelf somewhere or whatever, waiting on them to ask about it, right? Because, you know, just curious, how important is this to you? And then after two or three weeks, I finally say, hey, so-and-so, I found your Bible three or four weeks ago. And it's like, oh, yeah. You know how many times they didn't even realize they forgot it? It's like we bring it to church because that's what we do. But it's not central in our lives. They do things. They, I've seen people where they just, they, and they don't do it to be negative, but, but they isolate themselves because even church, the congregation coming together, lacks importance to them. And so other things take precedence. It's not like you can't ever miss church, but it's like, why do we come together? It's just iron sharpens iron. And so we grow in our worship to God together. And so, again, the Paul, is placing, or Paul is placing an implication here that we can put this down and that we shouldn't do it because no soldier would have ever gone to battle without a shield. It wasn't optional. Yet we have believers that do everything they can to walk in the enemy camp with as little armor as possible. And yet we should have this on all the time. Now let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want you to turn over to this one if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want you to see something here. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18. It says, "This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, and I'm reading out of the King James here, that thou mightest them mightiest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good consciousness, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck." Now I've read this thing, I don't know, dozens and dozens of time. I've reread both Books of Timothy, I can't tell you how many times. But this jumped out to me this time because I'm specifically focused on faith here. And what is he saying? Holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. In other words, just comparing these two with what Paul said in in verse 16 of Ephesians 6 and verse 19 in 1 Timothy 1, is that we're holding faith like we would our shield. We hold it. And a good conscience. Now, what does a good conscience come from? A good conscience comes from knowing the th- who we are in Christ, the things that God said about us, and doing the things that He said to do. We can have good conscience when we know we are right with God. But some have put away their faith. And what are the results of that? Have made them shipwreck. Shipwreck is not a good thing. To put away your faith leads to a spiritual shipwreck. All these writings are by Paul. They're written by the same guy. That's why we can tie these together so easily because we know what's in his mind because he said it over and over again. When we begin we set down our shield, when we put things away, when we're not doing the things that we should be doing, it leads to a spiritual shipwreck. Think about in your past. Think about people that you've known. Think about people who, who that you maybe came to Christ at one point and they were going and doing really, really well. And then something maybe happens or life sets in. They begin to miss church or, or whatnot or whatever the case may be. And before long, you see them isolated on an island. They're, they're shipwrecked. They're not walking. They're not trusting God the way that they once did. They're missing out on a key here, and that is that that we hold our faith, and we hold this good conscience, and we don't put it down. Exactly what Paul was saying before. So what is the purpose of the shield? Verse 16, Ephesians 6, again, says, Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now this one jumped out at me when I was looking at this, because I try to look at the original language of these different parts and stuff. We have software that, that does that. Because there are times that, in our English, it doesn't always portray the exact image. But will be able. There's something interesting about the Greek word that's used here for this will be able portion. And as soon as I tell you what it is, a lot of you guys are going to recognize it right away. It's the word dunamis. Now dunamis means explosive power or dynamic power. And in fact, if you've grown up in a charismatic church at all, you've heard that word used a lot. But you see... Dunamis used in Acts 1.8 But you shall receive power, It's the word dunamis, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So this is the last thing that Jesus told His disciples before He left. He said, you need to go. I want you to go and wait. And then the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and when He does, there's going to be power for you to be able to do the things that I've told you to do that you will be able to do the things that Mark 16 says. That the believers will lay hands on the sick, that they will cover, that they'll speak in new tongues. All these different things that go with this. This power that comes from the baptism in the Holy Spirit that comes upon us to walk out the things that God has ordered us and commanded and told us that we need to do. And so it's fascinating that these two words are used. It's the same word. When you hold your shield of faith in front of you where it belongs... And that shield is both anointed by the Holy Spirit and saturated in the Word of God. Your faith positions you to move in God's dynamic power. We see the water of the Word. We wash ourselves with the water of the Word. We're anointed with oil. All these things, these tie in together. We've got to have that shield in front of us. It's God's power. Where is the battlefield? I've asked you to think about that every time. Where's the battlefield? It's right here. He attacks our minds and our emotions. He comes to you and He says, you're going to die of cancer. There's been cancer in your whole family and you're next. Or your marriage is going to fail. Your parents are divorced. Your grandparents are divorced. You're next. Or whatever. I mean, you're going to go bankrupt. You're broke. You don't know what you're doing. The economy's terrible. You're going to go broke. These are the arrows of the enemy that He shoots at us. That again and again comes through. What do we see in 2 Corinthians 10 when we read this? Every week for three months. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds. For casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. The enemy continues to throw again and again and again and again until he finally breaks through. We have to stay up and alert and ready for battle at all times. If we never take off the armor and we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and the washing of the water of the Word, none of those darts will ever come through. There's never a promise given that God will make the darts stop coming. The only promise is coming is that they will be ineffective against you if you walk in My ways. We do this individually, but we also do this corporately. We do this together. So walk very closely when they were going into an area. And I told you what, last week when we were talking about the shoes that when they would walk into the town just simply marching, how loud it was because they would talk about how they specifically marched and how it would, it would be intimidating and it would ring out to people because it was so loud. But when they were in battle moving into an area, they would walk very closely together. They, they would move in unison and their shields would attach to one another. Um, you can see some videos of this, of people acting this out. It's called the turtle procedure or something like that, where they've got these shields out in front of them, and they create a wall in the front, over the top, and even behind them on how they're doing this. But they would create a massive wall, and it would protect the whole group. And they would steadily move forward, going into wherever they are, because they couldn't, the enemy could not penetrate these shields together. And if we would steadily and aggressively move forward, putting pressure on the enemy and thwarting all his authority and all the things that he's saying his strategies with our faith together, imagine what we could do in a city. Imagine what we could do in a county. And imagine what we could do in a state or a country or even this whole world. Because the thing that we have is that the body of Christ is not just made up of Grace Church. The body of Christ is everybody who calls on the name of Jesus. And if we unite with them, going with one heart, one mind, and one purpose to do the work of the Father, the work that Jesus came to do, that we have continued to do, to go into all the world preaching the gospel, what would we get done? No attack of the enemy would ever prevail, because we're doing the things that He told us to do. You've heard me say that. I pray it all the time that we have one heart, one mind, one purpose. I pray it all the time. And the, the, One of the youth ministries I was at, we actually painted this up on the wall over and over again because this is who we are. We're united together with one heart, with one mind, one purpose that we are going to do the will of God. Together we stand up, together building each other up in our most holy faith. Exactly what the Bible told us to do. We don't let the things that that maybe we differ on separate us, even inside a church just like this, as individuals coming together, because we all have ideas of things that should be done. But we come together to move forward on the enemy. There's implications here in all of this stuff. The only people who put on armor are soldiers. That's it. Civilians didn't do it. They didn't wear armor. They would lean on the soldiers. They were hoping that they were going to be strong enough to overcome whatever attack that they have. If Paul's telling us that all of us need to put on the armor, what is he telling us? That we're all soldiers. That we're all in this fight together. That we don't just have a defensive faith, but we have an offensive faith. And we do this when we take it to God. It's our faith that sits in front of us. That nothing can penetrate because it's grounded in truth. When your beliefs, when your thought process, when your, your belief in things is, is grounded in the truth, when you know you have the truth, nothing will shake you from that. All of the things in 2 Corinthians 10 is against the knowledge of God. There's no doubt who God is and what He does. We know it. Why? Because we have the truth. He gave us His Word. His Word is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And yet we live in a country that's constantly trying to find ways to the Father every way but Jesus. Because Jesus is offensive. Jesus said that maybe I can't live my life the way that I want to. And yet we have a Savior that gave it all, paid the price for us, died on the cross for our sins, in our place. That that blood that flowed down was for us and covers us. And that it was the ultimate sacrifice that was given that brings us in righteousness